And just like that, it's daylight. It's hard to tell which annoys Stephen more, Wallace sobbing in her sleep or interrupting his morning routine to wake her from a bad dream. She sits up and glances at the dream journal on the nightstand. She's written a note to herself. It's just a single word. Run. I get it. But she doesn't. The guy's a tool. He keeps calling her, Babe, scolds her and says he thought she was having morning mimosas with her bridesmaids before the wedding. She says she thinks she'll pass on mimosas with the girls and go for a run instead. Yeah, she definitely does not get that note to herself. She says she's got to clear her head, and he scolds her again, says it's beneath her to use the word gotta. Then he tells her to do what she wants, as long as she looks like the literary star she is for the cameras, and has her bags packed and ready so they can pick them up on their way to the airport after the reception. She tries to point out that their bags would all fit in her Subaru, and they could go straight to the airport after the reception, but he starts lecturing her on optics, says the entire day is one long photo op, and pulling away from the curb with just married streamers trailing behind a cherry-red classic Mustang screams, storybook romance between the hottest literary agent in San Francisco and the brilliant young poet he plucked from obscurity. He sums it all up by reminding her of the importance of her hair and makeup being perfect for the cameras, babe. She dresses in jogging gear before stretching and heading out for her run, and I can clearly see why any man would want to possess her. I just can't see why she would let any man treat her like a possession. The haunting hum of the Golden Gate surrounds her as she tries to outrun images of the nightmare creature that cornered her in the dream she just can't seem to wake from. As she loops around on the jogging path, she stops briefly to take one last look at the bay before heading back to the house. A dragonfly she hadn't noticed following her drops down out of the sky. It circles her head and then parks itself in front of her, hovering just inches from her face. She asks aloud if it's a fire-breathing dragonfly or just the regular kind. And I wonder how much she knows about the Chinese belief that a dragonfly is actually the soul of a dragon, which is honestly something I've always wondered about. Instinctively, I glance around to see if the tall man is there, the one in the black suit he always wears under that long overcoat. I spot him standing across the jogging path watching her. I don't think he sees me, though. He seems to be focused entirely on her. As she turns toward him, he tips his hat. And as always, once he tips his hat, the dragonfly buzzes away. She mutters to herself as she runs back to her house, saying she knows him from somewhere. I know that feeling well. A car slowly drives by, a song drifting through an open window. Something about Leviathan living in a lake. Somewhere near a border state, I think. 
I'm used to these random synchronicities, but what the hell did any of this have to do with Leviathan? someone as she's peeling out of her jogging clothes, saying she's been sidetracked and there's no way she's going to make it for her makeover. Then she showers and packs. It all seems uneventful until she drops the bags by the front door and starts frantically digging through the outer pockets, searching for something that is clearly not there. I lose track of how many times she says, where the hell is it? As she runs to the bedroom and rips handbags from the closet shelf, then tears through the dresser drawers and plants F-bombs everywhere. It's obvious she's not finding what she's searching for, and that it makes no sense to her that she can't find it. That's when the same dragonfly appears, the one from earlier. And just like before, it circles her head and hovers in front of her face. As soon as it's got her attention, it darts out the bedroom door and down the hall. Wallace follows it to where it lands on the doorknob of the room at the far end. I have to stifle a laugh when she tells it she's not falling for its voodoo dragonfly mind tricks. That room is Stephen's inner sanctum, she says, his forbidden place. But the dragonfly just darts between her face and the doorknob while she argues that it's not her place to question Stephen's creative process. It just hovers right in front of her face and stares her down. Look, I know he hasn't written a thing since he left teaching to be a literary agent, she says. But I don't judge, and neither should you. The dragonfly seems to be getting impatient, because it just repeats itself by once again circling her head and returning to the doorknob. As soon as she opens the door, it darts across the room and lands on the drawer handle of Stephen's desk. She opens it and promptly finds the passport she's been searching for. It's on top of a stack of letters addressed to Wallace Whitman. The postmarks go back more than a year, but only the oldest has been opened. It's from a law firm in Eureka. Her foster father had died over a year ago and left her a house the house. She explains to the dragonfly that the house that was so haunted it was possessed had done more than just shelter and terrify her as a kid. The poetry it inspired had kept her off the streets, away from a life that far too many kids just as young end up suffering through or not surviving at all. And it brought Stephen into her life when he got House of Fantods published. It also made the house such a notoriously haunted location. Her foster father had been unable to sell it after her foster mother died, so he left it to Wallace. Out of spite, the dragonfly seems unimpressed. When she goes on Stephen's computer to research the law firm, she learns two things. According to a Skype chat that he never bothered to close, he's gotten chummy with a lady realtor in Eureka.
who is going to a tax auction to bid on a house for him that was never claimed by the owner's heir, the house her foster father left to her, the house of Fantods, and after that they're turning it into an amusement park attraction, like Disneyland's haunted house, only with real ghosts. And the auction is set for when she and Stephen are on their honeymoon. She tells the dragonfly she still has no idea what Stephen was doing with her passport as she pulls the stack of remaining unopened letters out of the drawer and starts to close it. But the dragonfly interrupts her by landing on a large manila envelope she hadn't noticed under the letters. Stephen had used the information on it to take out a life insurance policy on her for five million dollars to go into effect as soon as they're married. A car horn blasts, and I know the sound well. It's the sound of a vintage Mustang. Wallace rushes from the room, and the dragonfly follows. Stephen carelessly wrestles the wedding gown into the trunk of his cherry-red Mustang, polished to perfection for the optics, and says, I thought you were getting your hair and makeup done this morning, babe. I cannot figure out how or why Wallace could possibly be going through with it. But there she is, sunk down into the passenger seat, as if resigned to just going along for the ride. The scenery seems dreamlike as they drive through the city, and the church is just downright unreal with its steeple and bells and lots of people with cameras that never seem to stop clicking. And for some reason, her maid of honor is wearing a name tag with a picture of a marina on it. The hairbrush she fixes Wallace's hair with has the same picture carved into its ivory handle. They don't talk, and the silence is eerie. You'd think Wallace would start gushing with what she's just learned and beg for help getting the hell out of there. But they both stay silent while the woman with the strange name tag fusses with Wallace's hair and fixes her train as the wedding march begins to play. The silence is broken only once when she leans in and whispers into Wallace's ear, it doesn't take an empath to know a man's intentions, Wallace. Follow your heart. It's the only place transformation really happens. I watch with dread as Stephen and Wallace stand at the altar for the ring exchange. But just as Stephen starts to say, With this ring I thee wed, that same dragonfly drops down out of the rafters and hovers between them at eye level. Know what Stephen does? He swats at it. Seriously? Yep, he did that. It was precisely what Wallace has been needing to wake her from her stupor. She slips off the engagement ring and hands it to him, saying exactly what needs to be said. Sorry, babe. Looks like you're going to have to cancel that insurance policy you took out on me. Why don't you give this to your friend up in Eureka? I then follow Wallace, 
who's following the dragonfly down the aisle and out the front door of the church as cameras click furiously. And there he is, again, the tall man, our tall man. I was as curious as she was about what he was doing there. Of course, the dragonfly goes in the opposite direction. She hesitates. It's obvious she doesn't know which way to go. Follow the dragonfly or approach the tall man and ask him where she knows him from. She doesn't do either. Instead, she turns around and points with the same index finger the creature had been chewing on the night before. At me. Who the hell are you and why the fuck have you been watching me? She shouts. That's when I hear the voice. Wallace. Wake up, it says. You have a visitor. It was the voice of a young girl. She was trying to wake Wallace, gently rapping on the door of a bedroom I had yet to see in person. Or was it someone knocking on the window of my car, telling me to move on? I did tell you this all started when I found myself observing someone else's dream while they were having it, didn't I? Actually, it was someone else's dream within a dream. You don't see that often. Know what else you don't see often? Someone observing your dream within a dream while you're having it and confronting them about it in the dream. Thank you.